welcome to the FE Research Podcast, a podcast that aims to showcase the practitioner inquiry, scholarship and research being carried out within further education. I think that, that, that the, the sector has changed a little bit, but I also think that there's an appetite for allowing it to, to become more focused, actually, rather than having um, such an immense diversity of purposes and also lack of clarity of purpose in some colleges. Um, so we're at a point where anxiety about uh, about financial um, security in colleges, which is which is in a terrible state, um, and about vocational qualifications, gives us a bit of an opportunity to re to refocus the purpose of, of colleges. And I think a project could help do that, mm. and it would give voice to the professionals. Uh, as well as the researchers in, in, in arriving at that. Hello and welcome to FE Research Podcast. My name is Joe Fletcher-Saxon and my partner in crime is... It's Alistair Smith. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Thank you very much. Well, we've got a real treat, haven't we? Again, well, they're all, it's always a treat, isn't it? But we've got uh, one of our long listens, we call it, which we say for our well, heavyweights are heavyweights in the and I can see that that heavyweight laughing now. The heavyweights of the education world. So slightly longer than um perhaps our normal podcasts. And it is Professor of Sociology of Education in the School of Social Sciences at Cardiff University, Professor uh, David James. How are you? Very well, thank you. And delighted to be here as well. Well, look, uh, do you want to start by telling us a bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I, I think uh, I think it's important, given the context and what we're talking about, to say that uh, I'm an FE teacher, really, um, in that that's what I trained to do. Uh, and that's what I did for quite a few years, um, teaching sociology, psychology, communication studies, that sort of thing, um, in a range of FE settings. And it was that that got me into higher education eventually because I was working in sort of staff development, professional development end of things um, and made a transition then into a polytechnic, did a PhD alongside my job and then a series of sort of promotions, what have you, uh, led to, you know, eventually uh, running a research centre and and being called professor. So, yeah, my, my roots are in further education you know, it goes it goes back to being a student as well. I mean, I I, I was a only a sort of moderately successful student in post compulsory education in terms of sixth form, um, and it wasn't until a few years later that I did a a course in further education, which got me my place in university. So you know, I've I've uh, I've I've been associated with FE for a long time. <laughs> Yeah. Well, look, I'm, I'm going to hand over to um, Alistair to start off with the questions this evening and then. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah Jim, straight in on this one. And do you know what? Thinking about the dates on this is quite, quite scary, David, because we were working out how long ago this was. And, and to say about 15 years ago is quite scary, but about 15 years ago, and you were one of the academics leading on a longitudinal study in FE around learning cultures. Uh, yep. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that and, and if any of it's relevant now, really. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot I could say. I'll, I'll try and sort of open with a few brief, real pointers, and then you might want to dig a bit deeper. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the first thing to say about this is it was it was part of a program, a, a large at the time, large program of educational research projects, and those projects covered you know every everything really that you could imagine in the field of education. There were projects about primary, early years, special needs, uh, lifelong learning. Um, FEHE, adult, all sorts of corners, work-based learning as well, um, were, were covered with projects. And um, I remember at the time, at the time, you know, people were talking about how expensive it was to do all of that. But actually, if you compared it to quite a lot of expenditure in the public sector, it was really quite small. Um, it was, you know, it wasn't an enormous amount of money, but it was a substantial investment where there had been uh, little prior prior to that. So that whole program was headed up by someone called Andrew Pollard, who, who did a fantastic job, I think, of putting education research more firmly on the map of all kinds. Um, and our project was one project inside that. What was distinctive about our project, um, I, there was a lot distinctive about it, but the things top of the list would be First of all, it was as much research in FE as on FE, if I can put it that way. The, the team consisted of experienced researchers, but also um, there, were, there were four participating tutors um, in the further education colleges that we worked most closely with, who were seconded to the project uh, and actually were part researchers, part researched um, in, in a sense, being teachers as researchers. And then there was a, there were a whole load of other, of, the, of their colleagues who participated um, in various ways, looking at each other's um, work and, and, and professional um, ambitions and uh, giving kind of reflexive feedback and learning from it. So it was a very, it was like a community, actually. Uh, another thing about it was that it was long and thin. So it lasted from 20, uh, sorry, 2001, ages ago, to 2005. And then the um, um, having lasted that long, you know, you, you can imagine it, it's a very long, thin project. Everyone on it was doing lots of other things, but it was a constant in our lives through that period. So, so interesting from a number of points of view. I think, I think that the last thing I'd say about the project that makes it really distinctive is, well, two things. First of all, it was the largest ever to date investment in trying to understand teaching and learning in FE. There's been nothing since like this. Um, there have been smaller projects, more focused or isolated projects, but this was really quite substantial. Uh, and the other thing I'd say about it, finally, is, is that it, it took quite a challenging approach in the world of education research. Um, it, took, it took the approach, you call it perhaps broadly a social practices approach. It was trying to understand what learning was happening, how learning was being constructed, how learning was being understood and, in, and, and as it were, practiced, uh, and how that differed as well between one setting and another, even in, of course, the same college. So. So it took a cultural approach to, to do that. So that's a sort of overview, but <laughs> there may be other things you want to you want to tease out about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll kind of work through some of those those main bits. But it's interesting you were talking about it it being um, 
the, the financial aspect of this, because of course the, the period of time you're talking about, and I talk about this with my colleagues um, quite quite regularly of remembering as that being the, the golden age of money when we could do things and there was some funding around for all mm. sorts of opportunities, whether that's equipment in colleges, growth development, and all mm. those things. Um, obviously now there's there's less of that. Do do you think that? we're maybe missing some opportunities now. Do you think there's there's time to build on what's gone before now? Do, do you think um, this this research yeah. can be added to with a, a more modern focus? I, I think it could be. I mean, it, it's it compared to some things, it's really not very much money. Um, compared to, for example, um, the, you know, the way in which some public sector um, I remember th- even at the time the um, computer system that was that was uh, developed for the National Health Service um, and didn't work. That was in the early two thousands. That you know that cost fifty times as much um, as as the entire research program of all the projects. <laughs> um, it, it's it's really interesting. I think too that that in certain in certain forms, there continues to be a lot of money spent on education research. Um, and for example, by the Education Endowment uh, Foundation, for example, um, and uh, in, in, in certain uh, uh, projects as well, funded projects from the research councils. I think what, 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 we've, what we don't have um, is a, a sort of a will to back research um, for the improvement of education in a sort of consistent manner. Um, And I do think that from time to time, some of those in power are quite suspicious of education research. Uh, They'd much rather uh, spend their money on consultants um, or uh, developers who will just give them answers without having looked very hard at what the problem is or, or how to understand the problem. That. Yeah. Okay. That's good. And um, I think when you were talking about the research there as well, you, you pointed out the importance here about it being on FE and in FE. Mm. Um, and I know that that we've talked about the the importance of the research within FE. That that's why we we do what we do, and and we involved in our re- own research mm. projects. Mm. Um, how important for this research was it to have that? Um, that kind of more balanced approach of looking from absolutely absolutely crucial uh and i mean there there are are two reasons um straight off that that was important Uh, one i call um, a sort of methodological perhaps even epistemological reason and what i mean by that is that is that if if your research question is what's happening here in the name of learning and what effects does that have on the people being professionals in this situation and learners in this situation or or on on this institution, then you've got to get, you have to become quite ethnographic really in your approach. You have to, you have to have ways of, uh, of, of, of teasing out the shared meanings almost much closer to perhaps a a Max Weber approach to the world uh, than, than say a positivist approach. Uh, if you're if you're researching on FE, what's happened classically in all sorts of education fields historically is that you start out with a very clear 
a definition of what it is you're looking for, um, of what it is you want to measure. Um, and you then develop tools that you can take into a situation to carry out those measurements. Now, I think that's problematic. I think that is it's highly problematic when, as we found in the project, learning does mean quite a variety of things, legitimately, uh, that it's it's constructed not only by what the syllabus says, what the learning outcomes are, but it's it's structured and constructed by the setting, by the histories of the individuals who come together, by the vocational culture, if there is one that's related to the course. All these things are powerful uh, shapers of what's going to happen and what people value. So, so you know, th that that seems to me to be, if you really want to know, <laughs> about learning in FE, that's the sort of approach you need to take. And, and the only way you do that is by getting inside and working with and alongside uh, the individuals uh, who, who, who are in that situation on a daily basis. So that's what we did. Yeah. And, and I think that the word you used when you were first doing the, the um, explanation on there was you said about it being a community yeah. of, of research taking place as well. Um, and I wonder you know, going, uh, moving forward on that, how, how would you sell that to other researchers in, in HE about that, that benefit of, of working with the staff in the college as well? Yeah, I, I, I think that it, it, um, that the project was an early example of something that was first of all, already happening. If you, if you look at, the history of, say, research in primary education based at University of East Anglia, uh, following the work of Lawrence Stenhouse, actually not just primary, secondary as well, um, and uh, John Elliott, for example. Um, th those individuals were, you know, important in, in something way back, which they called the Teacher as Researcher Movement. Um, and... And they they worked very closely with professionals for some of the same reasons, actually, um, of, of, of getting good enough information, uh, of getting a good enough understanding uh, of the subtlety of how things work in order to say something sensible about it. So um, and also to help those individuals make their own decisions, you know, that, that that's that's also important. Um, so. So, the, so it was there before, and I think it's still there now. I mean, if you in, in various forms, if you're applying tomorrow for a large um, research council grant, say, to do some research in any field, but particularly in the social sciences, uh, you will have to demonstrate your pathways to impact. You'll have to talk about how you're engaging all the stakeholders in whatever way is relevant from day one. Even before you've designed, you know, finished your design, you should be doing that. So, so in a way, there has been a shift. Uh, we were part of that shift. Uh, and if you like, we were both symptoms of it. And I think uh, sort of setting down some examples of how you might do it as well. Um, so, so you know, it kind of sits very well in that in that tradition, I'd say, of teacher as researcher. 
Yeah, no, fantastic. We sat here just listening. I can see Joe frantically writing notes down, enjoying listening. <laughs> <laughs> I want to dig into a little bit about the, the research it, itself as well. And in the research, you shared six broad principles for in, improving learning. Yeah. Um, do you think it's the same now as it, it was then? Um, or what principles might maybe fit now, or if there's much of a difference? I think I think it is broadly the same um, in that uh, we 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 were sort of in well, first of all we were informed by a sort of cultural Bourdieuian approach to the study, but also by Dewey and by situated learning theory. So people like Levin Wenger, and if you add those things up and they sort of get a bit mixed up, what what you get is. What you get is a, 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 a perspective on learning which views it as a sort of transaction, uh, developmental. You know, sure, there might be lists of assessment criteria or learning outcomes, and they're, they're interesting, they're important, but they're not everything, and they certainly don't sum up what's being learned by a long way uh, or what's being taught or what's what's going on in the engagement. So, so um so I suppose starting with that perspective, we decided we couldn't come up with pat formulas for everybody, but we did come up with principles, principles of procedure, and, um, and we addressed them in four lists, actually, addressed to, um, uh, to government, to colleges, to tutors and to students. And those... Those kind of principles of procedure. I've, I was reading them again recently. I think they, I think they still hold actually, um, and they're not meant to give you a recipe. They can't do that. They're not meant to give you a recipe. They're meant to give you avenues to for people to take up and explore and expand themselves. And it's very interesting. You've reminded me that that one of the things that happened since the project, much more recently, actually. Uh, well, not that much more recently, um, more recently than the project, but uh, I'm just looking at the paper. It's 2014. I, I, I picked up some of these things and applied them to the HE context uh, in looking at assessment. And, and again, you know, came to offer a set of questions. So rather than saying this is the recipe for understanding assessment or doing assessment better, these, these are the things you should work on if you want to make it better, you know, which, is a, which is a different kind of approach and very in keeping with a Deweyan uh, perspective, incidentally, on, on learning. And John Dewey knew a thing or two about learning. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. I'm going to hand over to Jo because I know she's, she's got many Go. questions to ask as well and follow up All from right. that. So, yeah, over to you, Jo. Okay. Um so huge study, five years, six hundred student interviews, hundred tutors. What was it? One hundred six? No, might have been sixteen logbooks. A certain amount of logbooks. Yeah. Seven hundred observations. Masses yeah. of data here. Yeah. So I suppose if we move to so what? What in the end? After all that, what would you say your headline kind of? Is it okay to use word findings were? Yeah. All, and then yeah. and then want to really know what happened with all that because I'm. In a leadership role in a college, and I often say nothing really crosses the boardroom table from educational research for us unless we go hunting for it. So mm. I want to know what, what what happened with all those findings. How did it get out there? Sure, yeah. Um, 
it, it the answer is it got out there to some extent. Um, there were colleges amongst the ones we worked closely with who took up our findings, engaged with them in a meaningful way. Uh, there were others that um, that the, there were local authorities up and down the country that used it to inform all their staff development, that sort of thing. In fact, it was the subject of an impact case study in like the, the Ofsted for research, you know, that takes place every five years. Uh, it, it was featured in, in, in the 2014 uh, one of those. So, um, so it did get taken up to some degree. Now, I think, I think what's important here is that there were also things you could call overall findings and they and they they're not easy to hear if you're if you're wanting a quiet life i'm not saying you are but <laughs> but if one wants a quiet life they're not easy to hear right so one of them a really major finding was that we demonstrated with evidence that 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 the some of the main systems that were claiming to improve teaching and learning were making it worse. So I'm talking about inspection, the way it was being done. I'm talking about funding regimes. And I'm talking about uh, things like um, rules and procedures around progression um, amongst students. So, so we, we, we gathered a lot of evidence of how these things played out on the ground. Uh, we found them damaging the quality of the interaction between uh, those who teach and those who are designated learners. We found them uh, undermining of individuals on occasions. We found them leading to self-exploitation by some individuals. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe it is different now. I mean, some of those aspects may have got better um, um, we, we, we're no longer working under that regime that the Learning and Skills Council were 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 sort of entertaining at the time. Um, maybe that's that's maybe that's an improvement too. But I, I do think those things really matter. They really matter because um, there are a lot there are lots of systems and systems Systemic and systematic systemic features, which are premised on uh, on the maximization of efficiency or improvement, but which have unintended consequences. You know, um, mm. we we found lots of examples of that, and we described them in 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 the in the various papers and in the book, of course, as well. Yeah. Okay, so it, it sounds like it, it sort of got. Got it. It found its way into colleges, maybe into teachers' hands as well. Yes. What What about policymakers? How does that work? How do you know ac educational academic researchers um, build a relationship with policymakers and have influence there? And did that yeah. do? I think that's a really good question. I mean, um, uh, I think this project there was some interest amongst policymakers in the DfE at the time. Uh, and a little bit of a little bit of in, invitation to share more, which we did. However, um, I, I, I think it was it, it, it was so radical um, to policymakers' ears that they found it tough. Actually, it, uh, incidentally, it's it's much easier 
with regard to the project that that I've been doing recently with um, Kate Watson and um, uh, and and Gary Husband and others um, on uh, governance in further mm. education. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's easier to talk to policymakers there, and I'm doing so regularly, um, because um, somehow the, the the set of findings, which I, I would argue are equally challenging, um, are are in a space that's under review. In fact, it's under heavy criticism and review. Yeah. You know, so, the, the, yeah. You so know, if, they're, if they're interested, if they're interested, they'll listen. That yeah, what, yeah, know? yeah, yeah. If they're interested, and in, and it's something that can be sort of isolated as a problem and then resolved somehow. Yeah, that's easier. You know, and I'm I'm not blaming policymakers. I think they have a very difficult job. Um, uh, there are there have been examples in that, that I can remember of people who should have listened and didn't. Um, but I think on the whole, um, it's it's sort of it's been too easy for some interests to say the trouble with education research is it doesn't speak clearly to policy or it doesn't mm. speak clearly to practitioners. I think that's just a rather cheap shot. I think it's not quite true. Yeah. Um, I think that, that the world is full of research, that not all of them, obviously, the world is full of researchers who can speak very clearly to practitioners and policymakers, but often practitioners even but often policymakers too uh, are not in a position to act on it, or it's just too challenging. Mm. Okay. Well, you, you, I mean, you you brought up the the uh, recent work you did about with governance on governance. Yeah. And I know in that it was about the disconnect, wasn't it? About the disconnect maybe that governors may have from the whole world of teaching and learning. Yeah, that's one of the. That is one of the findings. Yeah. So, so what, what? What's the answer there then? What? What should colleges? So myself, you know, leadership role. What? What should we be doing with our governors? How? How we should we be working with them oh, to make well, them, you know, yeah. engaged in teaching and learning? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the one of the uh, things that that project, very much like the Learning Cultures project, I'll answer your question, but the the, the sort of it's preamble to it. Just like the Learning Cultures project, that 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 governance project is as interested in what I call the room for manoeuvre as it is in the manoeuvres. So governors do stuff; they 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 think and act and make decisions. Um, they work with college senior management in different ways. They do all that stuff. They're very active, but their their space for um action is actually highly constrained because of funding rules because of various uh, legal duties and more than that because of historic expectations about what they're there for now that what's interesting is how varied they are given that that they're all in constraints they they vary enormously in, in, in what they spend time doing. So, so our project offers um, a, a view of certain facets that, that affect all governing bodies, for example, accountability or strategy. And, and we point out what's happening under those banners and make suggestions. For example, uh, the recent paper that I um, wrote on that back of that project with, with Gary 
um, and also Steve Garner, shows how accountability is described in one way in all the guidance, like the AOC guidance or guidance from the Scottish government, pretty much similar. It's described in one way, and the major way it's described is that the college senior managers should be accountable to the governors. Um, now, that happens, but it doesn't happen very much. What's far more common is that is that, that the governors find out about uh, things very late on with no option to, to redirect them at all. What's also happening is that because of the demands, the external demands on colleges, the governors are very specialised as well. You know, they're, they're specialists in finance, estates, um, perhaps risk, um, certainly all of, the, all of the things that you need to run an institution, which is a, a multifaceted entity. And, uh, and what that means is that those, that those governors um, are doing the things they really, really have to do to make the institution survive. And that it's very easy to leave teaching and learning to the experts who are the people actually doing it or managing it. So I think, you know, what, what's happening there is it, there's lots of spaces to change that. There's lots of opportunities to change it. But it's not only governors themselves that would have to shift what they do. It's the demands being placed upon them, the way they're held responsible for uh, financial uh, probity, viability, for example, you know, that could change. Um, mm. it, it hasn't always been as marketized and as red in tooth and claw as it is at the moment. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking, reflecting on my time as a governor in a school and then relationships with governors here. Mm. It feels like it's really stepped up a pace in the, in the level of rigor in the challenging questions, even documenting challenging questions now. Yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. You know, so perhaps yeah. some of that is trying to address this. Um, if we go back to learning cultures then, um, so one of the um, terms that you used um, in the report and in, in, in the book is professionality. Mm. I'm not sure if that's the same as professionalism, so maybe you can and tell me that. But what would be, what would you say professionality in FE is now? And is it mm. the same as it was then? Yeah, I think I think it's still under challenge. Professionality, professionalism, and professionals uh, are three different terms. Professionality, first of all, is is if you like the degree of professionalism that people can identify with or think applies to them, or that they feel is expected of them. Um, so it's it's a it's a getting away from the sort of crude notion of profession, which or simple notion of profession, which is it's just people doing a job as well as they can, or rather doing it well enough to some standards. Uh, that's important, of course, but historically, professionality contains other things like autonomy, decision, lots of decision making, lots of thinking on the spot, lots of um, drawing on. Um, experience to respond in different ways, and um, and I think that uh, this this is a dilemma that's very well illustrated by inspection. So uh, certainly in the colleges we were studying, in some I, uh, I I've known inspected recently, very recently, and certainly what I hear from some school based inspections and teacher education inspections. Um, what can happen is that is that 
um, pro professionals, professional educators are persuaded to stop being so professional whilst the inspection is on because it's thought too risky. Um, and you've got this interesting dilemma sometimes where the, the inspectors are saying, well, why is it also predictable and bland? Um, what, why, why, you know, why aren't, why isn't there more variety in what you're doing? What, why didn't you decide to switch at that moment yeah. into this? Because and, variety, and, another way, way of describing variety is risk, isn't it? Well, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. so institutionally, there seems to be a um, high premium on reducing risk mm. in yeah. the face of inspection because the consequences are massive. Yeah. But we've seen, we've got evidence uh, from that, the project we're talking about, and there is other evidence since, that uh, what that does is it oversimplifies uh, the role of the autonomous professional as an educator. Mm. Um, okay. So that you know that we saw that time and again actually yeah. um, happening. So I think you know that was one of the things we found. We also found a um, a, a sort of a difficult relationship with people's own. Often people, as you know, working in further education have pre-existing sort of um, professional or occupational identities. They, mm. they, they are expert, you know, in something. They're, they come in as, as, as people who, um, who work in marketing and know a lot yeah. about it or yeah. people who do plumbing or people who are artists or people who are, yeah. you know, psychologists or whatever it might be. This is uh, the, I always think this is a, am I a plumber or a pedagogue? It's that. It's yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there's a problem of dual dual professionalism um, or indeed dual professionality because they're both contested. And um, what, what can happen, we saw, was that on the one hand, uh, a, a, an individual working as a teacher can feel that their vocational background is valued um, and valuable um, to the college, to the learners, and they bring that with them. They bring it as sort of... Mm -hmm if you like, positive baggage, you know, a disposition, because they know about, about the trade. But then sometimes when they're working in, in a college setting as teachers, they, they find that they're quite highly constrained in what it is they can teach um, yeah. or which bits of the vocation are permissible. Yeah. And, and I think that's an interesting problem uh, for them individually. But it it also means that some of them get very disillusioned and leave, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So so I do I do think we 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 tried to uncover that uh, a fair bit um, in the project. Um, gosh, I still think that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we could carry on and on on that one, and it's still a, a thorny issue now. I think. Yeah. Um, so another little um, phrase that I picked up was you describe or. You know, the book describes Effie as a shadowy presence <laughs> and yet one that is called upon to remedy problems in wider society and the economy. And I thought, well, that sounds familiar. Yeah. We're still, we're still there. We're still there. We're still there. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, for all the recent claims in England to have rediscovered uh, technician level education, further education, lifelong learning, even people mm. are talking about that again mm. in policy circles. But the fact is that uh, maybe that maybe something is changing. I don't know. But normally, most of the time, mm. uh, news coverage, a lot of research coverage, 
Um, a lot of awareness amongst policymakers, politicians particularly, is limited to schools and mm. HE. That's what they think the world consists of, you know, schools yeah. and HE. Even though the FE sector is enormous mm. and quite expensive, actually, uh, and has loads of students in it, absolutely loads of students. So so that, you know, the, the, the that doesn't – it's a very bizarre thing that we still, I think, suffer with. There's complex reasons for it, I'm sure. It's partly to do with social class. Mm. It's partly to do with um, with the sort of academic vocational, the way in which those two things are, va- are, are, are valued um, in particularly English society, probably British, probably I'd say, you know, they're not they're not valued as as as, as equal as they might be, and that's a problem, you know. Yeah. So, I think what's just occurred to me wasn't one of my pre-planned questions, but it's just popped into my head now to ask, why is it, do you think that, because I've been, I don't know, yeah, teaching for maybe 24, 25 years. Um, and in all, all this time, there's only ever been really, I would say, one major change to A-levels. It's when it, it sort of, um, it went back to being a full, you know, it got split up into AS and A-level. That's and it's right. Got, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But, this, of course, vocational in that time has yeah. been through masses and yeah. masses of change. And we're here yeah. again now. It's T-levels. Why yeah. is it that the technical and vocational yeah. is the bit that goes through so many reiterations rather yeah. than, but, but not the A-level? Why isn't the A-level touched Very good. Way? Very good question. I mean, the, um, the, 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 there's a few answers. I think I'd start by saying there was one occasion when it nearly did get get revised um and um and that was um i think called the tomlinson review um but it, it you're right it wasn't and and there's there's something there about the uh electoral appeal or at least the use of a levels as a, as a notional gold standard which is of course rubbish i mean you can't you know you can't there's no objective grounds for saying that, um, given the way that the numbers of people doing them has increased way beyond their original conception, the way they change themselves over time um, as, as entities. Um, so, so they are viewed as a gold standard. But there's another reason too, I think, which our old friend Pierre Bourdieu helps us dig out, and that is. That is that they function very well. A-levels function very well to maintain social advantages for certain groups. So the way Bourdieu would describe that is he would say, if he were alive, he would say, oh, look, here's a, here's a, here's a class of, um, of 30 students in this, in this state school. It's a very good school. Uh, they're, they're all doing A-level English. And historically, this school has quite good results, so they're probably going to do well. Here's this other school over here where because people pay a lot of money in fees, uh, the classes are extremely small. In fact, for the weaker students, there's basically one-to-one tuition, which which uh, is, is so consistent that it gets them over the line and furthermore gets very high proportion A stars. And, and the way that functions for university entry um, more prestigious university entry, particularly, actually suits the people paying for that education rather well. And you know, I, you know as well as I do that 
the products of those schools and those universities are highly heavily represented in in power. Mm. Uh, so, so that's what Bourdieu would say about that. So, so that's one reason. I, mean, I think there are other reasons as well. It, it, vocational qualifications. Um, there's, there's a sort of a misplaced belief in in a technical fix mm-hmm. that that if you can only get the right animal, you know, built to mix metaphors, mm-hmm. you can only get the right sort of version for the times that we're in, then everything will be fine. And of course, that never works. Mm. Um, because it's always more complex than that. There are there are all sorts of reasons that that, that people are not choosing uh, vocational qualifications as readily as they're choosing academic qualifications. If they think they've got half a chance with the academic ones, many of them will go there first. Mm. You know, so we're, we're the FE sector as a whole is up against that. Even though, ironically, of course, it contains some of the best providers of A level uh, anywhere. Mm. So, yeah, interesting okay. dilemma. Interesting yeah. dilemma. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask you a bit of a fun question now that we asked. Ooh. We asked Gary Husband, so we will see. Although I think it was a a different Secretary of State for Education at the time. But your question <laughs> is: Imagine you've got into a lift with Nadim Sahawi. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, you're travelling from the ground floor up to floor ten. You're not going to oh. be in the lift very long. No. You've got your one chance to say something to him. What are you oh. going to say? Um, if I speak quickly, I might say two things. Okay. Uh, the first would be, um, by the way, COVID transmission happens in schools quite a lot. <laughs> Can't we do something about that? That would be the first thing. Uh, the second thing I think I'd say is um, it's time we had another discussion uh, a serious discussion about how education research uh, has something to contribute in a democracy. Indeed, I'd say it's vital for a democracy. I'd leave that ringing in his ears as I got as I got out the lift. Okay, right, all right then. Um, <laughs> so it seems you've you've just ended on um, education research. Um, so Alistair and I are involved in uh, kind of movements that are tr- um, really championing. FE lecturers or people across the FE sector to get involved more directly in researching practice themselves as action researchers, practitioner researchers. Yeah. I mean, what's your view on the potential future for that? It's sort of happening in pockets. We see it's sporadic, a little bit funded, a little bit not, very much grassroots driven. Should Hmm. there be more of it? What could happen? What could that look like? Yeah, I'm... I think there's a lot of potential for exciting developments here. Um, it's early days, but in Wales, uh, in Wales, ordinary school teacher education, if I can call it that, has become not only a partnership affair but a research-based affair. It's 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 early days because there's a lot there's a long way to go yet, but but that's legislated for. You know, it's mm. it's the way it's now structured um, when it's inspected. They want to see how are you using research, who's mm. doing it, how's it informing the development of your program, as well as the individuals uh, themselves. So it is possible to make research more central um, by diktat and by expectation. Um, that can be, I think, a good thing. It could. It's it's too early to say whether it's sort of working in Wales, but it, it could be a good thing. I think what what's also uh, uh, terrific is 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 that where in some colleges there's 
um, a high expectation this probably shouldn't ever be a total requirement on those that teach, but a high expectation that where they can, they would um, engage in research, either directly or indirectly. So d- directly would be the sort of thing you would do if you did a master's, if you hadn't got one, or, or a PhD or whatever, or an EdD, um, and you would you would end up researching something about the practice around you perhaps even your own practice. I think that that's very enlightened form of um, development, actually. I think it's much, much more uh, rich. It's long-term. It takes a long time to bear fruit, but it's a much richer idea of staff development than having designated days where everyone packs in and does certain things together uh, for a day or whatever. Um, and I think it, it leads to a sense of greater professionality um amongst staff which is a good thing yeah it's a good thing if people think the institution wants them to think for themselves and have autonomy uh it's a good thing this is this is i'm going to be clipping this out and referencing this in my thesis david this oh splendid mu- music to my ears yeah absolutely splendid. we've got um about 17 of our staff at the moment all engaged in, you know, leading action research projects of their own. Oh, so it's, it's, a, it's sort of a great time, really. Um, okay. I'm going to hand over to Alistair now for um, the next few questions. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I'm just going to I'm going to revisit this thing, David. We started at the beginning, um, realizing how long ago it was you started with this research. And you said it started at uh, 2001. So here we are 20 years later since the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, And obviously a lot of time has passed since um, since the work was published um, as well. And what I'm really interested to know is you charted critical moments in improving teaching and learning, but what critical moments do you think have happened since sort of 2007 sort of time? Is there anything that stands out thinking like um, cognitive science is quite dominant at the moment? Is there anything? That yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, the, the I don't know whether you got this impression, but the book and the project is very challenging of um of the idea that you can understand learning sufficiently via psychology uh so psychological understandings are important always they're always important and there's quite a few of them actually different ones um, including more cognitive approaches uh, more memory-based approaches or uh, social psychological approaches um and 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 various other notions going way back I, th- I think probably the team if if i could get the team back together you know this moment and ask them what they thought of of all that they would probably agree that that we've been over determined determined too much by psychological notions of learning in the world of education it's no coincidence i mean the rise of psychology itself is is coterminous with the rise of education state funded, you know they're, they're almost parallel. Um, so, uh, and, and as we know, you know there were various uh, major major kind of reshapings of education which relied on psychology, um, including my own eleven plus failure when I was eleven years old. That relies on psychology heavily. So, so 
I think probably if I got this team back together now, this moment, and said, what do you think of that, uh, our relationship to psychology, they'd all agree that what we're trying to do in, in, in the research is to examine learning from a sociological viewpoint. That is, to examine learning from um, what happens, what, pra- what social practices are that people recognise as learning. Um, now, some of those have psychological elements, for sure, but an awful lot of them don't. And, and I, you know, I take Laven Wenger's uh, example here, um, or extend it anyway. You know, if, if there's a class of kids doing maths, some of them are learning maths some of the time, okay? Quite a lot of them are learning at any one time that they can that they can do it or that they can't um, or that they're not very good at it or that they're very good at it in other words they're learning all sorts of things about their relationship to the material and how they feel how it feels to them what it means for their future they're learning all of that stuff all the time and that and that's that's the difference between a sort of a um, a, a most psychological views of learning narrow it down. They, they're doing what I said earlier about boxing in the definition of what's happening so that you can test it. Uh, this project is an attempt to do the opposite, which is to say, what's going on here that's called learning? And how can we describe it and understand it? Could it be made better? Could it be improved? Um, how does it differ from site to site? And it does. It differs immensely from site to site. In, you know, in some sites, it's more a participatory sort of notion uh, of people learning to become something, um, learning an identity, learning a set of practices. Uh, in another setting, perhaps even next door in a corridor, there are people who, for whom learning is memorizing formula uh, and then hopefully seeing some meaning in that as well so that they can memorize them more easily. And those, those two notions of learning are diametrically opposed uh they're very very different so so you know that that's the sort of that's how i think i would i would um portray our ambition to understand learning is much more like the situated learning theorists and or dewey and or bourdieu but you know there have been other sort of shifts in the world of teaching and learning um there's been a resurgence recent in recent times in the use of something called learning styles, um, which which is based on a very slender evidence base. Um, and I think you know, as a sociologist, my question is is what's the evidence base first of all? But bigger question: Why do people find that attractive? Why why do they think they need it? You know, why are they prepared to use it? I hope I hope none of my trainee teachers are David. That's <laughs> just think that's on our list of um, myth busting. Okay. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just conscious of uh, of of the time. So oh, right. I, yeah, I just yeah. I it's know. flown, isn't it? It's, it's, it's great, but we 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 try and uh, you know keep people under an hour. Um, okay. I just wanted to ask about you mentioned lifelong learning, adult adult. 
I, I, I'm thinking you mean adult education, adult community learning, that kind of thing. Um, so I'm working with some colleagues. We're trying to set up a new professional alliance for adult educators, you know, to get that recognition there for those oh. uh, people who work in that sector. What, what? Tell us in a few words, what is the possible future now for adult community education? Yeah, well, good question. Really good question. I mean, in, in, in institutionally, its prevalence has really diminished, hasn't it, in the last, you know, I remember yeah. there being extramural classes in the local university oh. before I ever went to a university myself. Heyday, yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, and I remember adult education classes thriving um, in, in in colleges, sort of in the evenings or in local authority provided uh, units. Now, there's still some of that going on. There's a lot less. Um, I think that that um, we have for a number of reasons, collectively, politically fallen out of love with adult learning as a society. I think it's been encouraged that that distancing has been encouraged by things like um, the, um, the very economic based view of the knowledge economy coming from multi, you know, from those transnational organizations like the OECD and the World Bank. Uh, they have an enormous impact on, on governments and what governments do. Um, and, and so, you know, we become wedded to the idea that learning only counts if it leads to a job directly or that learning only counts if it leads you to a higher uh, qualification on a set of levels, which are taken as gospel, by the way, you know, that those levels are somehow existing in nature or, or they're tablets of stone or something. Um, that they are, are simply convenient constructs. Um, so, so what we've got there is um, is a sort of a distancing from the principles of adult education, which are about human flourishing, and about um, about opportunity to develop the self, uh, to be a different or better citizen, even as well as learn new skills and new uh, interests. I, I think that. There's something going on at the moment that might be interesting, which is that is there's a rediscovery of lifelong learning in the UK. It's never it's never disappeared in many other European countries, um, and the so-called fourth industrial revolution that um, the World Economic Forum keep talking about have done since about 2006 um, or seven first. Um, that gives rise to lots of anxieties about uh, robotics, automation, um, workplaces disappearing, jobs disappearing, um, that you know the rise of digitally enabled forms of work like the gig economy. Um, all of that is creating a space for new concepts of lifelong learning, which are largely rediscoveries of adult education, actually, because there's a there's a problem about how people navigate that, whether their lives um, uh, um, could be assisted in remaining as enriched as possible by having opportunities to pursue interests. So, so I think there's a, you know it's an exciting space. It's also very worrying um, that you know maybe maybe nothing will happen, but uh, but I do think that's a possibility. Hmm. Uh, we'll hold you to that, David. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. Well, look, we'll draw draw things to a close with just a final question by asking you in a in maybe just a sentence you're allowed. Okay. Okay. If you were given a pot of money tomorrow yeah. to lead another, you know, impactful study in FE, yeah. what might it be about? What might you focus on? Good question. Very good question. I think it would bear a lot of similarities to the one we've been talking about because I think it was well designed. Uh, but we are, as you said uh, earlier, 20 years on from when the fieldwork started in that last project. I think that, that, that the, the sector has changed a little bit. But I also think that there's an appetite for allowing it to, to become more focused, actually, rather than having um, such an immense diversity of purposes and also lack of clarity of purpose in some colleges. Um, so we're at a point where anxiety about uh, about financial um, security in colleges, which is which is in a terrible state, um, and about vocational qualifications, gives us a bit of an opportunity to re to refocus the purpose of, of colleges. And I think a project could help do that, mm. and it would give voice to the professionals uh, as well as the researchers in in, in arriving at that. If that man a pot of money. Yes. <laughs> well, thank yeah. you. I'm glad. I hope you're on the committee when it when it meets, yeah. whatever, whenever that is. <laughs> well, look, thank you so much for your time uh, um, joining us today in this conversation. It's going to be really um, heavily downloaded, I think, in podcast oh. world. I think lots okay. of listens. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank and uh, I've enjoyed it very much. Good to see you. And good luck with your own studies as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. You have been listening to the FE Research Podcast, a Sheep Hill Studio production. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us again soon.